a letter from Aleppo in Syria about Aleppo. We haven't seen a good day in years. The shelling never stops, even for an hour. Everything is destroyed or deserted without life. Even in our dreams, we no longer know what safety means. Every time you open your eyes, you don't know if it is the last time you'll see your kids. Hope is gone, along with our city. In 587 BC, a survivor of another war-ravaged city, the Jerusalem of Jeremiah's day, wrote the same thing, precisely. My hope is gone. He wrote it in a, a series of five poems, requiem poems that we know as the Book of Lamentations. And we don't know who he was, maybe Jeremiah, but he had superb literary skills. He incorporated the limping rhythm of, of dirges in his poems and an alphabetic acrostic, sort of like Psalm 119, and uh, a mix of voices representing survivors of Jerusalem, and even one of them representing Jerusalem herself. And the voices describe the destruction, they weep, they confess, they complain, they blame God, they interrupt each other, but they are all the voices of the psalmist himself. Their heartache is his heartache, their retching is his retching, their confession is his confession, their confusion is his confusion, their hopelessness is his hopelessness. You see, the psalmist in all Jerusalem had thought that Jerusalem was the hope of the world, God had given them the city. God had put his temple there. God had told them that he, they were going to bless the nations. But after a two-year siege, the city fell and was destroyed, and all that remained was dust and debris and death. All the main buildings were in ruins, even the temple. All of the leaders were dead or in captivity. All of the defenders of the city were slain. All of the able-bodied, the children, the youth, the women, the men, were all force-marched 900 miles to the land of the enemy and put into captivity. Only a handful, mostly of infants, invalids, widows, and the elderly remained, and a few jackals. And so the psalmist begins, how deserted lies the city that was once so full of people. When Indian students arrive for the first time in Kentucky, they sometimes ask me, where are all the people? And I say, they're in all the cars. But here in, in vanquished Jerusalem, there were just a few widows left, people who were invalids, uh, infants. Uh, not much, not many people left in the city. And everything was gone. Everything was destroyed. And they were in the midst of famine. But bad as that was, there was something even more disturbing to the psalmist. And it was knowing without a doubt why God had allowed the enemy through the gates. It was Jerusalem's own doing. She had been disobedient to God for a long time. She had not regarded widows. Now she was a widow herself. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away captives, says the psalmist. 
And he adds that the Lord's right about it that. And yet, the psalmist had an even greater concern than the silence and the inaction of God. Granted, when we sin, God allows consequences that he does not will. The psalmist gets that. He knows that. But if God is all-powerful and all-loving, then why does he allow consequences disproportional to the crime? Indeed, it seemed to the psalmist that God had not just allowed the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, but that he had joined the enemy forces. Listen to his accusations that he puts forth, that he puts in the mouth of Jerusalem. The Lord brought my suffering. He sent fire from on high. He summoned the enemy. And later on, there's another voice that comes out and says, God has no pity. And He's stringing his bow, but not to slay the godless, but to slay those who are pleasing to the eye. I wonder who people in places like Aleppo blame for their woes. ISIL, Syrian government, the Americans and the Russians and their bombing, no doubt. Some, though, uh, blame God. Because did God not have the power to curb all of that destruction and death. I wonder who the disciples blamed after Jesus' betrayal and arrest and trial and crucifixion. The religious authorities? Or Judas the betrayer? Or Pilate? Or the God who abandoned Jesus on on the cross? Make it more personal. Who do people far away from any kind of war blame for the cancers that kill their loved ones? Who do they blame for the destruction and the deaths that come from the winds and waves of hurricanes and cyclones and tsunamis? When bad things happen, many people instinctively turn to God and they ask why, as if God is somehow complicit. God can tell them exactly why all of this is going on, but he hasn't done anything about it. What they're really asking is, God, if you are the great controller of all things, why can't you even control my little circumstance? And if suffering has to come, why can't you make it a little less painful? That was the writer of the the Psalms uh, question. That was his concern. In his view, no city had ever gone through what Jerusalem had. Your suffering, he says, is as vast as the sea. How can I comfort you? Nobody else has ever suffered like you have. Well, that's not true, of course. In fact, the suffering of Jerusalem in 587 BC was not and is not unique. From Sodom and Gomorrah to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, natural disasters and disease have humbled hundreds of cities in every generation all over the world. On Palm Sunday, many of us remembered uh, that the recovered Jerusalem of Jesus' day, over which Jesus wept, was soon going to be destroyed too. And if you've ever read Josephus' first-hand account of its fall in 70 AD, you will know that the suffering was just as bad, if not worse. The litany of destroyed cities is actually immense. History records hundreds of them on every continent. And so we need to enlarge the question, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, how could he not intervene in all of those places of death and destruction? Could it be that God is all-loving but not all-powerful? When the psalmist found no answer to those questions, he drifted into hopelessness. Just as Jesus' disciples 
drifted into hopelessness after the crucifixion on, that, uh, on the following day when they were confronted with the reality of his dead body in a tomb. Gone is all that I had hoped for, said the psalmist. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel, said one of the disciples. In other words, neither the psalmist nor the disciples saw a way forward. Now, we've all known days of losing hope, or will. One day we're in the Palm Sunday parade, marching in the sunshine of singing beautiful, beautiful Zion, and we're as sure as we can be that the Lord's steadfast love will never cease and that his mercies will never come to an end. But the next day, off in the distance, we see storm clouds approaching. And before we know it, the storm is upon us, and everything seems to fall apart. And that's what happened to the disciples between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. The week started with sunny hosannas, and from there, regressed all the way to Jesus, dead, crucified, crucified, dead, and buried. By Saturday, the disciples were very sure that the final act of their journey with Jesus was not going to be the storybook happily ever after ending that they had imagined on Palm Sunday. And like the psalmist, they were sure there was now nothing to look forward to. But back to the psalmist, because suddenly, you know, the psalmist says, my hope is gone, and then the, next, the very next thing he says is, well, it surprises us. He no sooner says he's at the end of his rope and has lost of all of our hope when he says this, but this I call to mind, and therefore I do have hope. So what's going on? What does he call to mind? What gives him hope again? What allows him to suddenly shift from an accusing stance to a praising stance in which he says this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why the sudden shift? What's going on? Well, the answer is that the psalmist's unexpected ascription of praise that suddenly comes, comes from his prior experience with God. The psalmist's life didn't begin with the fall of Jerusalem. He had a lifetime of experiencing the faithfulness of God and the love of God, and suddenly he's begun to think about all of the times when God did show up and did help him in the past. For example, he specifically remembers a time when he was thrown in a pit, which were prisons in those days, that's what a prison looked like, and that may mean it was Jeremiah. He remembers how he called out from God to, to God from the pit, and God showed up and told him he was there to help him and not to be afraid. So that and other memories of God's faithfulness uh, bring a return of hope to the psalmist. And with the renewal of hope comes a renewal of patience and a readiness to turn to God in prayer and to wait. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. Being patient and willing to wait is key in the life of the believer, and never more so than in times of crisis and, and suffering. And I don't mean that suffering has a season, and therefore you need to grit your teeth and stick it out. No, we grow from suffering. We learn all about ourselves. We, we learn how to better trust God. We discover that suffering can be uh, one of the all things that work together for good, and we see how that happens. Uh, and this is so important to the psalmist that he decides to underscore it for his readers. 
uh, and, uh, you know, the simple remembering of God's faithfulness in the past, it can generate hope for the future. He realizes that. It's, it's happening for him. It's really nothing new. The Bible is full of this principle. It's what Passover was all about. It's what communion is all about. But we tend to take it for granted after a while. And so to make sure that we don't forget it, the psalmist intensifies the acrostic that he's been using in the first two chapters. And when you get to the third chapter, the third psalm, he intensifies the acrostic as if to underscore that chapter and this section where he recalls God's faithfulness in the past so that we won't forget. Unfortunately, though, that wasn't enough because you get to the fourth psalm and, uh, and the upbeat note isn't there anymore. In the fourth psalm, the acrostic is back to the old pattern of the first psalm and the second psalm, chapters one and two. Why? Because memories can help, but memories can't heal. Why not? Well, because by themselves, memories don't erase present realities. There was still death in the city and dying in the city. The psalmist looked around and the suffering was the same. Suffering as vast as the sea. And so in chapter four, we, seems, we see what seems to be almost a reversal, a kind of relapse, uh, a shift from the memory of God's faithfulness and love back again to the awfulness of the situation. It's just too overwhelming. In other words, the psalmist seems to be making progress, even a breakthrough, but then he regresses. He circles back to obsessing about all of the bad things again, the slaughter, the subjugation, the suffering, the starvation, all of the rest of it. He's reminded himself of the love and the mercies of God, and it's helped, but suffering still surrounds him. The tongues of dehydrated babies still stick to the roofs of their mouths because their mothers have no breast milk for them. Death is at the door. Gaunt old men and, and skeletal children uh, drop in the streets for lack of a scrap of food, and there will be no rescuers. And widowed mothers cook and eat their dead children to keep alive themselves and the children who remain. This is just too much. No memories were going to deal with that. And so the questions come again. Why should innocent children have to suffer? What did they ever do? Why should old men have to live out their final days in pain? Why would widowed mothers be forced to do the unthinkable? Of course, we still ask questions like that. In the last century, there were the questions of the victims of the Nazi Holocaust and the Cambodian genocide. And today, we have the questions of distraught African and Middle Eastern refugees in desperate searches for a porous border somewhere. And, and, and of the citizens and of, of, of Brussels and, and, and Paris who worry the storm is going to overtake them at any time, they have those questions too. But they are also the questions of grief-stricken parents of children who are suffering from deadly and debilitating diseases and of husbands losing wives and wives losing husbands, and children losing parents. You see, suffering is suffering. Is the loss of a, of a child or, or a spouse or, or, or a parent or a friend less catastrophic because it happened through an illness instead of a bomb in war, or a jumbo jet crash, 
or a killer tornado sprinting over the, the, the plain or a massive typhoon uh, surfing from sea to shore? Uh, of course not. Ancient Jerusalem and modern Syria are not the exclusive domains and arenas of suffering. Suffering knows no borders and suffering will not be a stranger to any of us. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional, says an old adage. That's sheer nonsense. Nerve endings aren't what make us human. Love is what makes us human. So of course we're going to suffer. Suffering comes to anybody who cares about others. No exceptions. Nevertheless, there is help to be had, although the psalmist didn't know what it was. Never did find out for sure what it was. The farthest he could go was to remember God's faithfulness in the past and encourage his readers to hope and pray with him for something in the future. That's as far as he could go. The truth be told, the disciples, despite having been with Jesus for three years on Easter Saturday, were virtually in the same position. To hope and pray was about the best they could do. So what do we do when suffering comes? At the start of this morning's worship, Dylan sang uh, an old uh, Negro spiritual. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrows. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Glory, hallelujah. I first heard that spiritual when I was a boy in the 1950s, and Paul Robeson sang it on the radio with his bell-like baritone voice. Yours is pretty good, too. However, somewhere along the line, I began to wonder how the downtrodden folk from whom those words first came could end their song about their endless woes as slaves with a glory hallelujah. And then, in the last verse, I saw the answer. They knew something in the midst of their suffering and sorrows that neither the psalmist knew nor the disciples huddled in their upstairs room after the crucifixion knew. And what was that? Well, two words gave it away. It's in the second verse, or the ending verse. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. But Jesus. They knew that the suffering of Jesus on the cross was about God identifying with and knowing the suffering of humanity. They knew what the Jesus, that Jesus knew. He knew their plight, he knew their poverty, he knew their humiliation, he knew their suffering, he even knew their dying. The psalmist didn't know that. And although the disciples in the upper room did know that, it seemed inconsequential to them because Jesus was now crucified, dead, and buried, dead. And it would be another day before the disciples knew what those singers of the spiritual knew that allowed them to end their spiritual, not with the psalmist's whimper, but with a glory hallelujah. So what did the slave singers of that spiritual know that made all the difference? It was this, that Jesus knows, not knew, Jesus knows. They knew that when in our dark night of the soul we call on Jesus, we are calling on someone who is dead no longer. They knew when we need him, he shows up. 
just as he did in the upper room. He walks right through that bolted, barricaded door and assures us that we need not fear because he has come to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. For reasons we don't understand, Jesus doesn't promise always to protect us from suffering, but he does promise always to be with us in our suffering and to walk through it with us. And he keeps the promise. He shows up and he walks with us and he even cries with us because he knows, he knows. And so, yes, you may well on some stormy Saturday after a not-so-good Friday find yourself in a shut and shuttered room and in darkness and in difficulty and in despair, but you know what those singers of the spiritual knew that the psalmist and the disciples did not know in the gloom of their Easter Saturdays. And it is this. Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. When the stone gets rolled away, Sunday's coming. And the resurrection's coming. And we're all going to be there. And Ellsworth Callis is going to be there. And Bob Mulholland's going to be there. And Thelma Gould is going to be there. And Dale Galloway is going to be there. They're all going to be there. And we're going to be there. Sunday's coming. And a resurrection's coming. And in the meantime, the living Lord shows up as promised to accompany, accompany us all the way. We better pray. Thank you, dear Lord Jesus, for the pleasure of your company. Amen.